0: Labor Day is coming up, and it couldn't come sooner, because like many of you, we're in the need of some good rest. So, we here at The Cut are going to spotlight an episode from a few months back about burnout and why exactly we work ourselves to the bone. So, take a break, enjoy the episode, and work smart, not hard. Here's Avery Truffleman. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. The Cut.
1: The Cut. The Cut. The Cut. Results came back negative, but why am I so tired? Uh. That was the sound of me last fall canceling yet another hangout in the park. I just couldn't do it. I could barely get out of bed. I couldn't sit down for more than 10 minutes without nodding off to sleep. Surely, I thought, this must be COVID. I must finally have it. This is what it must feel like. But when tests came back negative, I thought maybe it was anemia or narcolepsy or an allergy of some sort. But it turned out it was another ailment spreading around. I was burnt out.
2: I'm really burnt out. I'm definitely burnt out. I am beyond burnt out. I think it's... No, I know it's absolutely coming from my job. Working in a really, really intense school setting, quite challenging students.
1: I am burnt
0: out looking for a job. I've lost all desire to do anything. This feels
3: insurmountable. If you've ever lifted weights, and you've done a bunch of repetitions, and all of a sudden, your muscles just kind of lock, and you cannot move, that's kind of what I feel like mentally happens. I think this entire year has shown us that when we take everything else away, your life is just reduced to work. And when that's all you've got, it burns you out.
1: Even though I understand burnout intellectually, I hear a lot of people talking about it, I had a very hard time recognizing it in myself. Because I am the luckiest person in the world. I have a job. and. It's a job I love, and it's a job where I get to just sit in front of the computer all day. I had no reason to be burned out, I reasoned. I didn't get it. How could I have every privilege in the world and still be that thoroughly fried? Burnout is what we experience today as a result
4: of the intense meaning that work has for us. That is true. If work was less essential, the concept of burnout would be different.
1: That is the one, the only.
4: I'm Esther Perel. I'm a psychotherapist and the host of the podcast, Where Should We Begin
1: and How is Work? Esther is most well-known for talking about romantic relationships. But one relationship that we don't talk about like a relationship is the relationship we have with work.
4: There is a parallel revolution taking place between the importance of our romantic relationships and the importance of work. We have never brought this kind of unprecedented expectations to our romantic relationships. And the same is true for work.
1: Esther says this has a lot to do with secularization and the rise of the individual.
4: We look to work today for belonging, for identity, growth, self-development, For purpose, for meaning, for community.
1: Where do we get meaning in our lives today? Where do we look for self-worth? Support once might have come from a village full of neighbors. Higher purpose and community might have come from religion. But Esther finds a lot of her clients now look to a partner, to be every kind of support they could possibly need. And they gain a higher sense of purpose and community from their jobs.
4: Love and work have become the hubs where we actually go to fulfill some of our most important existential needs. We want passion in both. We want to become the best versions of ourselves in both.
1: In work, like in romance, we've come to desire what Esther calls Eros. I use the word
4: Eros as an expression of aliveness, of vibrancy of vitality. I don't think of it just in the sexual sense of the word, as modernity has kind of narrowed it.
1: Eros, like erotic.
4: Yes. I think that some people experience an erotic connection to their work, but not because it's sexy, but because work gives them that sense of aliveness, that sense of energy, that sense of vitality. That whole side of our life that we call the side of Eros, that lives side by side with the parts of our life that demand stability, safety, security. And this year in particular, we have to hone in so much on our security needs that the hinge got snapped off from our erotic needs. You know, we flattened the curve and we flattened ourselves in the, in the course
1: of it. So even if you are lucky enough to have a job that gives you a sense of Eros, it might have soured over the past year. Doctors to essential workers to podcasters are working longer hours in the pandemic. And day to day in my life, there's nothing going on but work. So on weeks where I think we did a good job, it's a great week. On weeks where I feel like I was off, I get really depressed. And this is usually kind of the case, but especially now my mood is inextricably bound to my work, which is bound to my ability to eat and pay rent.
4: When work is the place where you outdo yourself, where you search for self-worth, it becomes unrelenting. If work structures your life to that extent, then the inability to meet the demands will translate into burnout.
1: Which is why sometimes I have a fantasy of like, what if I just took my heart out of the equation and just did a job I don't feel so attached to? Something that just pays well or well enough and I won't care about it and I won't pin all my self-worth to it. But that is exactly what the protagonist decides to do in the Japanese novel, There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job. Kikuko Tsumura.
2: Hi, um, so my name is Kikuko Tsumura and I'm a Japanese writer. I am currently 43 years old.
1: That is, of course, Kikuko Tsumura, and our conversation was fully interpreted by the very generous Polly Barton, the West London based translator of There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job.
2: It seemed to me quite obvious that the more that you feel for a particular job, the more you put yourself into it, the more you give to it, and then the more exhausted you get.
1: In the novel, the main character suffers from extreme burnout. And we never learn her name, so I'm just going to call her the narrator.
3: I'd left my last job because it sucked every scrap of energy I had until there was not a shred left. But at the same time, I sense that hanging around, doing nothing forever, probably wasn't the answer either.
1: The narrator goes to a recruiter and asks for the most boring, the most easy job possible. Something she couldn't get emotionally attached to.
3: I didn't really think she'd be able to oblige, but I figured I had nothing to lose by asking.
1: So the narrator embarks on a series of very easy jobs. One job, writing copy for advertisements on a local bus, A job researching fun facts that will be printed on packets of crackers. She does a stint hanging up posters. But the most boring job of all is one where she is watching surveillance footage. Just watching a man go about his life as he cooks, watches TV, and types on his computer. And she's not allowed to fast forward through the footage. She can't zone out. And so our narrator spends all day watching this other guy do his boring work. Just when I would think he'd given up on the idea
3: of ever moving again. He'd reach out for the keyboard without warning and hammer away furiously for 30 seconds before sinking back into repose, or open up his browser and sit
1: scrolling with grim focus for the next hour. And so she sits all day watching a screen where some guy is also watching a screen. But over the course of the many weeks the narrator spends observing her subject, she starts to get weirdly invested in him. She starts to wonder about the movies she's watching him watch and the products she's watching him buy and the recipes she's watching him cook.
2: <laughs> she starts to be influenced by his eating habits and wants to eat the same things as him. And, you know, that it's a, it's a kind of trap in a way. And it's exactly that sort of trap that I wanted to write about.
1: With each job, each increasingly low maintenance and low stakes, the narrator starts to get intrigued by it, starts to feel like she's getting really good at it, and starts to feel kinship or connection to her colleagues or to the work itself. Each time, she starts to get attached and then has to move on to the next job.
2: Yeah, whatever she's doing, she ends up feeling like she's really suited to it and that she's therefore, that she loves it, you know? That's her tragedy.
1: And, you know, thinking back on it, I think that might have been my tragedy too. I've never not loved my jobs, or at least found parts to like. When I worked as a babysitter, I loved the kids. When I worked at an Italian restaurant and in a cafe, I loved my coworkers. We'd spend all day shooting the shit and teasing each other while we covered each other's shifts. As a retail worker, I tried to get interested in the products I was selling. After all, I was spending so many hours at work. I just wanted to make it as good as it could be. So, are we doomed to invest in what depletes us? Or is there another way out of burnout? After the break. By this point, I'm pretty well versed in all the tips around burnout because they all do help. But sometimes if I don't remember to take a walk, take a bath, take a nap, drink water, make a boundary, call a therapist, take a breath, buy a plant or do a new face mask, it just feels like I'm failing at another thing. I'm like burnt out. I'm trying to manage my own burnout.
0: I think people tend to personalize what is a societal issue. You know, they chose the wrong job or they chose the wrong partner or they didn't save enough money. A lot of times we are working within this system that kind of limits what choices we have.
1: Tara Jefferson is the founder of the Self Care Suite, a wellness community for women of color.
0: I think burnout, is a um, accumulation of stress that has no place to go. There's this need to figure out, well, what do I do with the stress that I'm carrying? Because it's past exhaustion, it's really deeply settled. And I think that's kind of like the hallmark of burnout. It's not just something that you can take a nap and just fix. And if you wanna think of it in another way, say you broke your leg you would change certain things about your life to help you in that healing process. So you might take some pillows down to make yourself more comfortable on the couch. You might try to eliminate how many times you go up and down the stairs each day. You would make those types of adjustments if you had some type of physical issue. And I think because burnout, It can be physical, but I think because it's more of an emotional state of being that people don't give it that same type of care and concern. But the first thing is recognizing that you have been burnt out and then thinking about what are the things that have contributed to it. Is it mainly work? Is it that you're feeling like you don't have enough time to breathe between assignments? Are you taking on the job responsibilities of somebody else?
1: Or is it the unpaid labor of caretaking, caregiving, cleaning, tutoring, protesting, organizing, surviving? Can't just walk away from that work. So how do you manage it?
0: When I coach women, uh, one of the things that I always recommend that they do whenever they're facing, you know, really stressful situations, whether it's personal, professional, relational, is just to stop and ask themselves, you know, what can I do that would make this easier for me? Who can I reach out to? Those two questions, I think we can ask ourselves that and that opens the door to more community because we can't necessarily solve these problems by ourselves. People say that old um, saying, "It takes a village," you know, to raise a child. It takes a village, regardless. <laughs> Everybody needs a village. We all need support, and we all need help. Whenever I'm trying to handle something on my own and I'm getting overwhelmed by it, I have to, you know, practice what I preach. And so then I'll stop and I'll pause and then I'll reach out to a couple of my trusted friends who understand, you know, what my life is like and what I'm going through and they, they know who I am and they can really give me good guidance. And I think the reason that works is that we have that reciprocity. I can reach out to them, they can reach out to me, and I think that's the, the definition of community. I think that's one of the biggest shackles of capitalism is that everything is individualistic. We feel like we are going through everything ourselves a lot of times because we are, <laughs> because we don't have those communities. And I think that this capitalist society has robbed us of that, and we're not able to see that as our first line of defense.
1: Uh, I mean, that's so beautiful. It's a beautiful solution, but it ultimately makes me so sad. I don't know. How much hope can we... Do you hold for actual reasonable change, or do you just think we're going to be destined to always have to try to find workarounds outside of the system?
0: So for me, what I try to do is remind myself that this isn't the end-all, be-all. Talking about all of this stress management and collective healing, all of this stuff isn't the end-all, be-all. Definitely want to have a society that is rooted in you know justice and equality and equity. That's not what we have currently. So what do I do? What do other Black women and other women of color and other people who are feeling crunched by this society, like, what do we do in the meantime? what am i going to do today here 2021 and so my role within my community is to remind women that your first responsibility is to yourself and then once you have been able to activate that within yourself then i think you know help whoever you can and i think that's part of the reason why i do the work that i do is because it's Always, I I firmly believe it's always easier to tackle these problems when you tackle them together.
1: This really resonates. Forming deep, lasting friendships, both in and outside of work, have really gotten me through my darkest days. But I have to admit, sometimes I second guess it or I worry about it because it's kind of fraught, right? It's become this trope now that so many businesses are like, we're a family or we're a community. And of course, work is not your family, work is work. You know, I'm always scared. Every time I turn to my colleagues and say, I love you guys, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that. That's, you know, that's bad. How do we protect ourselves from that blurring line?
4: If work is as central in people's lives as it is, growing close to your coworkers isn't a problem. It is essential. Mm. The people who show up at work and how they relate to each other, that ultimately will determine the kind of day you will have had.
1: But isn't the well already poisoned? I mean, there's hierarchy, there's power differentials, there's money exchange. You know, these aren't whatever the word purity means. These aren't pure relationships. I mean, how much of a non-toxic work environment can one reasonably expect? I don't believe that there are relationships that don't have that. There are no relationships
4: that do not have a power dynamic. Hmm. Every relationship has a power dynamic. Power is intrinsic to attachment. Anybody, by the way, who has a two year old also understand that power doesn't always come from the top down.
1: And to that point, caring for your work or for your workplace or for your coworkers doesn't always just lead to burnout. It might lead to sharing salary information and sharing negotiation strategies. It might lead to new ideas for an improved workplace for everyone. It might be the first steps to your union, or just some steps to put one foot in front of the other to get through.
2: It's not that she wants to find this kind of attachment to the job that she's doing somehow. The attachment finds her.
1: Kikuko Tsumura wrote there's no such thing as an easy job based on her own experience of burnout. And she was as mystified by her burnout as I was by mine.
2: I knew that, in theory, being a writer was what I really wanted to do. And so I couldn't understand why it felt so hard for me. It was just this constant feeling of like, I can't do this anymore. I want to stop. I want to stop.
1: So did you find your passion for writing again? And if so, how? Um,
2: Well, you know, if I'm not working, I don't have the money to eat and live and that kind of became clear to me and essentially what I did was to forget about this particular job that I found so difficult and which had hurt me and little by little started work on a different job. I mean in my case still writing but a different project and I didn't immediately feel the passion again but Gradually, I was able to kind of overcome this burnout that I felt. And, you know, essentially, that's also, in a way, what happens to the character in the book, right? I mean, I don't want to give away the ending or anything like that, but the book is about that process.
1: I'm not going to give away the ending either. But I will say the book doesn't have a quick fix because there isn't one. Which is another way work relationships are like romantic relationships. Even the best ones have really rough patches. And when confronted with a problem, you can either make a change or find a way to keep going. And that's what the narrator learns.
3: The time had come to embrace the ups and downs again. I had no way of knowing what pitfalls might be lying in wait for me. But what I had discovered by doing five jobs in such a short span of time was this. The same was true of everything. You never knew what was going to happen, whatever you did. You just had to give it your all and
1: hope for the best. How do we sustain the passion in what we do? My question to you
4: will be, why do you want to constantly bring passion to work? Why don't you diversify? If I talked about romantic love, I would say one of the most important features for a healthy relationship is to diversify, is not to expect everything from one person. You want other relationships. You want people who value you, even not by what you are accomplishing, but maybe by who you are, by how caring you are, by how generous you are, by how musical you
1: are, by your other talents. It makes me feel like there's something... (laughs) wrong with me if I want to dedicate all my time to um, the thing that also makes me money I don't know I'm not going to take up knitting because I feel like I should like do something else you know You, when I say
4: that you need other sources of meaning, you kind of say to me, I'm not going to take up knitting just (laughs) as a way to, you know, as if, but you you put this thing that knitting is this little pathetic thing that you're going to do, (laughs) you know, just to prove to yourself that you can make work less meaningful. I'm not asking you to make less meaningful work, but it doesn't only come through what you do at work. Art, nature, community, volunteerism, activism, all of those. There's lots of ways that you can connect to something bigger than you.
1: But this is so not a part of our culture. If someone asks you, what do you do? It's hard to say you are a poet or a runner or an actor or an activist unless that's the thing that earns you money.
4: It's a very American thing also to ask people, first and foremost, what do you do? And it has this notion that you could come here from another country and start from scratch and be defined solely by the merits of your own efforts. And nobody's asking you whose son you are and whose daughter you are, you know, as as you are much more encapsulated into the legacies of your families in other parts of the world. But at the same time, what does it tell you? What does it really tell you uh, when you ask people what do you do? And then what does it mean when at that moment you're not doing it? Can you still present yourself as an actor when you're not in the midst of acting? Can you present yourself as an artist when, you know, you... so this idea that I am, I am what I do versus what I do is a part of who I am. Can I suggest an alternative question to this one? Yes. A great question to play at a dinner party. If you didn't do what you do, what would you be doing? It's a fabulous question about the paths not chosen, about the passions relinquished, about the hopes for a different future, about the facets of a person you will never know because all you've seen is the engineer or the artist or the podcaster or the therapist. If you didn't do what you do, what would you
1: be doing? Okay. I always thought I'd be a gynecologist. What about you?
4: That is an amazing... Nobody would guess this, of course. Nobody would guess this. If I was not a therapist, I would have loved to be a singer.
1: That makes sense. Hard life, though.
4: Well, that's a reason why I didn't become a singer. (laughs)
1: The Cut Podcast is produced by Jasmine Aguilera, B.A. Parker, and me. Edited by the incredible Kelly Prime. Our executive producers are Hannah Rosen, Stella Bugby, and Nishat Kurwa. Mixed by Alex Higgins. Special thanks this week to Sarah Jaffe and Anne Helen Peterson. Very special thanks also to Kazue Kurahara, who played the voice of the narrator. The Cut Podcast is a production of New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support all their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Avery Truffleman.